Hello, I'm Dr. Bob Hopkins, and today I'm going to review treatment for COVID-19 in non-hospitalized patients. As a reminder, the best way to prevent COVID is to get vaccinated with one of the three approved and authorized vaccines that are available across our country now. So I'm going to start going through our questions, and the first question I want to discuss is, what are the national guideline recommendations for COVID-19 treatment in non-hospitalized patients? There are a number of guidelines which have been developed and disseminated worldwide. In the U.S., the most robust and consistently updated are the Living Guidelines from the National Institutes of Health and the Guide from the Infectious Diseases Society of America. A number of other organizations, including AAFP, AAP, ACP, and others, have developed guidance which is similar. I should emphasize that, as of November 2023, there's not a current medication or treatment which has been found safe and effective for post-exposure prophylaxis to prevent COVID illness or an antiviral approved to treat low-risk patients with COVID. So, that said, let's start with the paradigm of an acute respiratory illness with or without fever. The guidelines recognize that all patients who develop an acute respiratory illness should receive supportive and symptom-based care. Analgesics, antipyretic medications, fluids, rest, cough suppressants, and minimizing potential transmission of the illness to others are important at an individual and at a community level. I should also mention here that glucocorticoids should not be used in ambulatory patients with mild or moderate COVID. Studies have demonstrated they do not help and that they may worsen outcomes. It's also worth mentioning that hydroxychloroquine, zinc, ivermectin, fluvoxamine, megadose vitamins, or other homeopathic regimens do not have a role in management of COVID-19. So, back to the recognition of an acute respiratory illness. This is the point where testing for COVID-19 should be implemented, either with a home-based or a clinical test. Home tests are less sensitive than clinical molecular tests, but they are a useful tool. To mitigate the lower sensitivity of home testing, a person with a negative test in the presence of symptoms should be retested in 24 to 48 hours to confirm the initial negative result, and potentially a third test may be done 24 hours after the second negative test if symptoms persist, as it may take time for nasal carriage of virus to increase to the level of detection of the test. COVID-19 antivirals are indicated for the treatment of mild to moderate acute COVID-19. Again, we're focused on those with illness not severe enough to require hospitalization. But it's recommended in persons who had onset of illness within the previous five days and who are at risk of progression to severe disease. So the critical elements in this assessment are, one, when did the symptoms begin? Two, testing for COVID-19 and a positive result. Three, determining who's at risk for progression to severe disease. And finally, four, which antiviral is the best choice for this individual patient? The second question we'll address is who is at risk for progression to severe COVID-19 and which patients warrant discussion about adding an antiviral to symptom-focused treatment? The group at highest risk for progression to severe COVID-19 includes persons with immune suppression who are not expected to mount an immune response to their illness, regardless of vaccination status, along with unvaccinated persons 75 and older, 
as well as those 65 and older who have chronic health conditions. The next highest risk tier includes unvaccinated persons 65 and older who were not in the highest risk group and persons less than 65 years with chronic health conditions. And the third high risk tier includes vaccinated persons 65 and older and those under 65 who had clinical risk factors. What you might ask are the clinical risk factors. These include the chronic health conditions we see and manage every day in our primary care offices heart disease, lung disease, liver or kidney disease, diabetes, smoking, obesity. In addition, persons in racial and ethnic minorities who've had disproportionate adverse outcomes from COVID-19, including African Americans, Native Americans, and Pacific Islanders are at increased risk. And finally, we need to recognize that pregnant women are at risk for progression to severe COVID-19. So to summarize, Individuals who have at least one risk factor for progression to severe COVID-19 in whom we should consider antiviral treatment make up a large proportion of our primary care practices. We have a tremendous opportunity to reduce the progression of COVID to severe disease, hospitalization, and worse. But this doesn't mean we should treat everyone with antivirals. There is no evidence that antivirals are beneficial in healthy, vaccinated, non-pregnant persons under 50 years of age. Our third question we'll answer are what are the potential benefits of antiviral therapy? Antivirals can reduce the likelihood of progression of COVID-19 to more severe disease, including hospitalization, intensive care unit stays, and mortality. And we'll dig into the data a bit more when we discuss the individual medication options. Our fourth question is, what are the current antiviral therapies available for use in the outpatient setting? At present, we have three antiviral medications approved and or authorized by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for outpatient treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. Ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir, prayed name Paxlovid, which is an oral agent FDA approved in persons aged 12 and older. The studies leading to its approval showed about 88% reduction and the relative risk for the composite outcome of hospitalization or death. The standard dose of this agent, three pills twice daily for five days, must be reduced to two pills twice daily for five days in persons who have renal insufficiency as measured by an estimated GFR between 30 and 60. And it's not recommended in persons with more severe kidney disease or in persons who have severe liver disease. Ritonavir is a potent suppressor of liver cytochrome P3A, so there are multiple drug interactions. The NIH guidelines site or the University of Liverpool drug interaction checker are wonderful tools to help sort out drug interactions, as is a conversation with your friendly neighborhood pharmacist. Remdesivir, trade name Vecluri, is approved for a three-day IV infusion the standard dose for those 12 and older is 200 milligrams on day one, followed by 100 milligrams on subsequent days for treatment of mild to moderate outpatient COVID-19 in adults. It can also be used in children down to 28 days of age and weighing over three kilograms with weight-based dosing. The greatest challenge with this drug is the need for IV infusion in a setting which can manage anaphylaxis but its efficacy in reducing the risk for the composite outcomes of hospitalization or death is similar to Paxlovid at 87% in the trials. 
Liver enzymes can be increased in some patients with remdesivir treatment, but it does not have significant drug-drug interactions. The dose is not adjusted in persons with renal insufficiency, and it may be used with caution and monitoring of liver enzymes in persons with underlying liver disease. Finally, molnupiravir, trade name Legevrio, is a ribonucleoside analog which is FDA emergency use authorized for oral use at a dose of four pills twice daily for five days in non-hospitalized adults 18 or older with mild and moderate COVID-19 in whom the previous, the alternative agents are not available or approved. The trial on which it was authorized demonstrated a 31% reduction in the composite of hospitalization and death. Dose reduction is not required for persons with liver or kidney disease. Again, monopiravir is only approved for those 18 and older in whom the other agents are not appropriate. And again, none of these medications I've just described are approved for pre- or post-exposure prophylaxis, and none are recommended for persons at low risk for progression to severe disease. Our fifth question is, what factors should be considered when selecting antiviral therapy for outpatients? As I mentioned earlier, time since the onset of illness is very important. The earlier after the beginning of illness that we can begin an antiviral, the greater likelihood of benefit and there's no data demonstrating benefit of outpatient treatment of COVID more than five days after the onset of illness. Pregnancy is a very important consideration. There's not a lot of data on the use of COVID antiviral medications in pregnancy, but based on what is available, the National Institutes of Health panel recommends offering ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir for treatment of COVID-19 in pregnancy or breastfeeding and balancing of risks and benefits in a discussion with individual patients. And this has been endorsed by the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. Nirmatrelvir recent pregnancy is not recommended in Canada, the EU, or the United Kingdom. Similarly, and again based on limited data, the NIH panel recommends remdesivir be considered based on balance of risks and benefits in pregnancy and, and lactation. Molnupiravir is not recommended in pregnancy or breastfeeding. Regarding pediatric patients, nirmatrelvir and remdesivir can be used to treat children at high risk for progression to severe COVID who are 12 years of age and older and weigh at least 40 kilograms. Unfortunately, only weight-based remdesivir is an option for high-risk children who are younger and or weigh less than 40 kilos. Ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir may be given at lower doses in persons with a GFR from 30 to 60, but is not recommended in persons with a GFR below 30, and this drug is not recommended in persons with severe liver disease. Both remdesivir and molnupiravir may be prescribed for persons with liver and kidney disease. Drug interactions are the greatest challenge in the use of ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir. Ritonavir is a potent inhibitor of hepatic cytochrome P3A, which means it interacts with numerous medications, importantly including anticoagulants, a number of antiarrhythmics, and calcineurin inhibitors. I use the Liverpool COVID-19 interaction checker and commonly discuss medications which need to be held with one of our clinical pharmacists. It's critically important to make sure patients understand what medications need to be held, for how long, and to keep our specialist colleagues in the loop so we don't cause more trouble than we're trying to prevent in treating outpatient COVID-19. So now that we know how to identify and treat outpatients for COVID, 
I want to share a few case examples to demonstrate how I manage these patients and why. First recent patient that comes to mind is a 56-year-old woman with severe obesity and diabetes type 2 who was last vaccinated in October 22. She returned from a visit to her grandchildren with new respiratory symptoms, which started the day before her office visit. We did a rapid PCR, which was positive for COVID. She was not on any medications with interactions and was treated with ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir and recovered. Unfortunately, she had symptom relapse a week later, but recovered without any ill effects. The phenomenon of recurrent COVID-19, or as many call it, viral rebound, after initial resolution of illness is not uncommon. Recent research suggests that this occurs in about 10% of patients, whether or not they're treated with antiviral medications. The second case is a gentleman that I was contacted by on Monday. He was a fully vaccinated 80-year-old man who had a sore throat and cough over the previous weekend. He tested positive on a home test. We discussed that his risk of progression to severe disease was high based on his age. Unfortunately, he was on flecainide and rivaroxaban for atrial fibrillation, neither of which could be held. An additional complication is that he lives in a rural area over two hours away and is not able to travel to a more urban medical facility for infusions. He did well with monopiravir treatment for five days. Finally, I think it's important to contrast two patients we recently evaluated in the office, Joe and his wife Jane. They were in their 50s with no chronic medical issues and returned from a cruise with respiratory symptoms. Jane was vaccinated, but Joe was not. Based on the NIH guideline, we did not treat Jane, but we treated Joe with ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir. Both subsequently recovered, and Joe has agreed to COVID vaccination at his next office visit. Before I finish, I want to leave you with some key takeaways. First and foremost, COVID is still with us. We need to be vaccinating as many of our patients as possible to reduce their risk for severe disease and hospitalizations. Uptake of the 2023-24 vaccine has not been particularly robust so far. So I encourage you to join me in strongly encouraging vaccination as a tool to reduce disease severity and, based on recent evidence, the risk for long COVID. Second, early identification of symptoms, testing for COVID, and communication with the extended healthcare team managing the patient is critical to determine who's an appropriate candidate and to treat them effectively. As of November 2023, two antivirals, oral rutonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir and intravenous remdesivir, are fully FDA-approved for COVID. A third oral drug called monopiravir is approved for emergency use authorization, but only should be prescribed if neither of the others is a viable option for the patient in question. Treating patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 whose onset of illness was within the past five days and who are at high risk for disease progression with effective antivirals is critical. However, there is no indication for antivirals in patients without a positive COVID test or whose illness is greater than five days ago in onset. Ivermectin, fluvoxamine, high-dose vitamins and minerals, hydroxychloroquine and glucocorticoids have no role in outpatient treatment of COVID-19. Metformin may have a role in the future, but trials to date do not support its use other than in the context of a clinical trial and it should be continued in patients on metformin who have COVID-19. 
People at highest risk of progression to severe disease include the unvaccinated, the immune compromised, people 65 and older, persons with chronic health conditions, and people with other risk factors like age over 50, BMI over 25, and people from certain racial and ethnic minority groups. Selection of an antiviral, assessing comorbidities, and assuring that we address drug interactions on the front end before treatment are critical strategies to safe and effective use of COVID-19 antivirals. Finally, I'm hopeful that we'll have additional COVID-19 therapeutics, potentially monoclonal antibodies or additional antivirals, in the near future to help us effectively treat more patients and reduce risk for progression to severe COVID-19 disease. I hope you found this information helpful and can use it to treat your patients effectively for outpatient COVID-19. Thank you for listening to this PrimeMed podcast and have a nice day.